So there's supposed to be a video there. I don't just have my own intro music. <laughs> just want to make sure that's clear as we get started. I mean, that'd be really cool and all, but it's not really what I'm all about. So um, it's all right. Let's just go to the slides. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. If you haven't been here, this is actually the last week of a series we've been doing leading up to Easter called Impossible. Impossible. And what we've been doing throughout the series, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, but not just walking through it uh, in a a, a normal way, walking through it by looking at miracles that John highlights. In fact, seven miracles, precisely, that John highlights that have a purpose, that point us to who Jesus really was and is There's 34 miracles that are accounted in the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but John highlights these seven specifically. And at the end of his Gospel, he actually tells us there's a specific purpose for them. I have to go all the way back because we're starting here. This is how technology works. Now, Jesus did many other signs, so John's telling us there's more than these ones that he highlights. In the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, the ones we've been talking about, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus wants us to know that these signs are to point to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And that by believing in him, you have life in his name. Not just eternal life, which is a great thing because of his death, his resurrection, because of him coming. If anyone calls, to, calls out to him, believes in his name, you will have life eternal with him. And it doesn't start the day that you die, it starts the day that you say yes to Jesus. But also, during this life, this time that we're all in right now, that Jesus came to bring life abundantly. John tells us that in John 10.10, and we can have life in his name now. And so we're asking the question, how do these miracles help us see how this applies to our life? So we've gone over seven impossible miracles made possible because Jesus is the Son of God. And the big idea, I hope that if you've been here for all six uh, six weeks, that you could tell me what the big idea is for this entire series. The big idea we've been tracking throughout this entire time was that we don't just seek miracles, we seek Jesus. We seek Jesus with all our heart, all our soul. If we seek Jesus, then God is going to do supernatural things in our lives. Maybe as supernatural, as incredibly supernatural as the change of a human heart, which I'll tell you right now is the greatest miracle I've seen. And so we're seeking Jesus throughout this and asking the question, how do these impossible things make something possible in our lives? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we have together. Lord, I thank you for these signs that you, uh, your Holy Spirit guided John to account for us, Lord. I just ask that as we go over this last sign that you would use it powerfully in this place this morning, that people would have their hearts open, their ears open. Wake us up this morning, Lord. Wake us up. Don't let this just be another Sunday where we check the Sunday morning box, Lord. We're calling on you. I'm calling on you, Holy Spirit, to move in our midst, to open hearts, to change lives, not because of anything I do, but because of who you are and what you can do through your mighty word. So Lord, use me, speak through me. I can't do this on my own. Don't let this be a time of just information gathering. Lord, bring about transformation in hearts and lives this morning. So when we leave here today, we leave here changed. 
And that people in our lives, people in our neighborhoods, people at our workplaces, people at our schools, they would see that change in us and they would ask, what is the reason for your hope? And we would be able to tell them about Jesus, the king of our heart, the one who arrested death, the one who overcame death, sin, darkness, and has given those who believe in him new life. Life now to the fullest. Lord, we ask this in his name. Amen. So growing up, uh, I don't know how many people have heard this. I was a pastor's kid growing up, and we lived in a, a parsonage, which was right next to the church. And around this time, every single year, our church would have a yard sale, or a, yeah, yard sale to raise money, and we would give all the money away to missions in the drive or the parking lot of the, of the church. And so everybody that was part of the church naturally brought all of the stuff they didn't want anymore, hoping that somebody else would want it, right? One man's trash is another man's treasure. And so I went over there, and my parents, I think, despised this, actually, because my sister and brother and my sisters and brother and I would go over, and then we would buy other people's junk as they were trying to get rid of theirs, right? Like, it's a terrible thing. And one time, uh, I went over there, and I found, uh, like, an old set of hair clippers, and that, like they were old and like yellowed and everything, you know, but I, but I bought them for a quarter or whatever it was and went home and plugged them in and wouldn't you know it, they worked. And so mom and dad were distracted because they were both over volunteering. You know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> yeah, they were volunteering at the, at the yard sale and I got the great idea to ask my sister to give me a haircut. So my sister Sarah starts at the back, because I guess that's where you go, and she starts shaving my head, and we, she gets right about here, and they die. <laughs> so needless to say, we send my little brother, he's the youngest, over to get mom, and have her come home, and wouldn't you know it, I end up having to go and get a haircut unexpectedly that, uh, that very next, uh, in the next hour, because, you know, you can't have that. It wasn't in style then. I don't think it ever will be. So I learned an invaluable lesson that day. You can't uncut hair. It's irreversible. It's something that's completely irreversible, and there's some things in our life that are irreversible, that we all go through each and every day. I mean, one other thing you can't, that's irreversible is you can't unbake cookies. If you burn them, you have to go buy more batter, right? Like you can't unbake cookies, it's just not something that's happened. You can't undelete documents. Now there are some like superhero uh, people out there that understand computers that can go and restore hard drives, but if you've ever deleted a document and lost it forever and started over again, you know what it feels like to, to go back to that irreversible thing. Um, some of you have probably experienced this, you can't unwreck a car. It's just something that's irreversible. It's something that can be put back together, but you can't unwreck a car. You can't unrun a red light. If a cop sees you, you usually sorry doesn't work for for running a red light. Um, You can't unsay something hurtful either. You ever say that? It just something comes out, and you're like, ah, can't pull it back in. It's just too late. And some of these things, we can laugh it off, like the cookies or even the haircut, we can laugh it off, it's not a big deal. Some of these things cost us money, you know, like the car, it costs us money. Some of these things that are irreversible, they cost us our pride, like having to humble ourselves and say, I'm sorry for that thing that you can't unsay. But there's some things that are irreversible, some things that happen in our life that leave a hole in our heart, that change things, 
and they're irreversible, like having divorce papers delivered to you and the pain of that. Or that frantic call you receive at midnight and what follows after that sometimes is an irreversible thing. Sometimes it's a a certified letter in the mail or it's lab results that you never wanted to receive and they're irreversible. The reality is, the, the reality of our lives is that sometimes the irreversible things that we encounter change our life forever. That's where the characters in our true story this morning are. A woman named Mary and another woman, her sister named Martha, and their brother Lazarus, who was sick and something happened that up till this point everybody thought was irreversible. I invite you to turn with me to John 11. John 11, (laughs) starting at verse 5. John 11, starting at verse 5. The first five verses of John 11 tell us that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, who wasn't nearby, to let him know that their brother was sick. And John John tells us that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were some of Jesus' very closest friends. And when when he received word, when Jesus received word, he did something so weird, he said, well, let's just wait. They expected, I'm sure, as you would expect if you sent to your friend, you sent to your best friend, hey, you have the ability to heal, hey, your best friend's sick, come heal him, come take care of this, that he would leave immediately, that he would stop what he was doing, drop everything and leave, and Jesus doesn't, he waits. Because Jesus says that there's something to be gained by his waiting, Now we come to learn later, we're going to come to learn later today that even if Jesus had left, Lazarus still would have been dead. Lazarus still would have been dead when Jesus arrived by two days instead of four. But Jesus waited because there was something to be gained. What was to be gained, John chapter 11 verse 4 tells us, is the glory of God. And just like John tells us every single week as we've been looking at John 20, that Jesus wanted the people to gain more faith in him. He wanted Mary and Martha to be rooted and grounded in their faith. He wanted the disciples' faith to catapult forward by this. And he wants our faith to grow. And he wants our awe for the glory of God to grow through this story. And so in verse 5, it tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And they thought it was strange at the time, but we fast forward to verse 17, and it tells us that when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. So Jesus waited two, two days travel. Lazarus had been dead for four days. And this is key. This is a really key thing we have to understand because if you were a Jewish person that lived during this time when Jesus was alive, four days was a really important thing. You see, most of the time when people died during Jesus' time, they buried them on the same day. And they believed that after three days, the spirit which had hovered above the body of the person would have completely gone at the third day. So the fourth day would have been the very first day that they believed that the dead person was beyond resuscitation. It would have been, shall we say, impossible for that person to ever come back to life on the fourth day. But that's when Jesus arrived. Story goes on and tells us, now Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained 
seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Now, we sometimes read this and we think that Martha's criticizing Jesus. Like she's saying, if you would have been here, you could have done something. Sometimes we think the same thing of him, don't we? God, if you would have just moved, if you would have just shown up, this wouldn't have happened. But I don't actually think that's what Martha's saying here. I think we see faith in Martha. Martha's showing us that she has faith that if Jesus would have been here, she knows that he's the healer. She knows he has the power to do the impossible. That's why they sent for him. And so she says something very naturally out of her faith. She says, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. But he did die. And even now, though, I know what you, whatever you ask from God, he's going to give you. If you would have been here, you would have prevented faith. And Jesus says something interesting. He says, one of the five, the fifth of the seven, I am statements in the gospel of John. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So before he gets there, he tells her, listen, he's going to rise again. But Martha's just thinking, yeah, yeah, I know. Like, I know someday he's going to rise again. Because I'm Jewish and I believe that one day those that believe in God will be risen up on the last day. So I know that. And she, she doesn't understand what Jesus is getting at. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Folks, this is an amazing statement. Her brother just died. She said, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus' response to that is, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Standing right in front of you. Many of us who are Christians, we've heard this before. We've heard this read at funerals. We've heard this read. We've read this ourselves in scripture. And we we can take a, a passage like this that we know well, and we can just breeze by it. Do you understand? Jesus is standing in front of her and saying, Right in front of you, in the flesh, is the resurrection and the life. Your brother will rise again because whoever believes in me, even if they die, they will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Think about that. Will never die. And he asks her then, do you believe this? Do you believe this, Martha? And she responds with what I think is one of the greatest faith statements that we have in scripture. She says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you were the Christ, the son of God who's coming in the world. See, Martha, before this encounter, she had faith, but her faith was preventative faith. She had faith in Jesus' power to prevent things from happening. Most of us have preventative faith. That's why we pray for people before they leave. That's why we pray traveling mercies. Lord, give them traveling mercies. I don't even know what that means sometimes, but we pray it anyway, right? Give us traveling mercies. We pray for people before they go into major surgery, that God would protect them, that he would guide the doctors and the nurses. This is all good things. This is praying for preventative faith. And Martha had that. She believed that if Jesus would have been there, he would have prevented death from happening. But what Jesus does in this encounter is he says, Martha, it's not just about having preventative faith in me. It's not just believing that if I'm present that things aren't going to happen. I also am inviting you to understand that I am the resurrection and the life. That if you believe in me, you can have a different kind of faith. You can have a resurrection faith. 
And that's key to Martha's transformation. That's why she says, I believe. He didn't ask her if she believed that he could change things before they happened. He, say, he asks her, can you believe in me that even if things happen, the worst possible thing that could happen, that I can still change the course of history? You see, resurrection faith believes that God can reverse the irresist- irreversible. That nothing is irreversible for him. And so he invites her to believe that. And Martha leaves there. And she goes and gets Mary. And Mary gets up to leave, John tells us. And, and the Jews that are with Mary and helping, being with her as she grieves think that she's getting up to go to the tomb to grieve again. So they follow Mary as she goes to Jesus. And when she arrives at Jesus, verse 32 tells us, now when Mary came to Jesus, and Jesus was where she saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him the same thing, that preventative faith. She's saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And John tells us something very interesting about Jesus' response. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, this is in English, obviously. The New Testament was written in Greek, and if we look at this passage in Greek, this deeply moved, this greatly troubled tells us that it could actually be two responses. The first response from Jesus could be compassion. Remember, John told us that he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so he looks upon her weeping. He looks upon these people weeping, and he's deeply moved. He has compassion for them because he never wanted death to occur. You need to hear this this morning. Death was never part of God's plan. It wasn't. His plan was that when he created humanity that we would live with him in peace forever. And he sent Jesus to restore that plan once for all. But in the meantime, here we have the God of the universe, the son of God, the God in human flesh standing there and he looks upon his creation, those that he loved, and they are weeping and he sees death and he is heartbroken and he has compassion. John tells us he's greatly troubled by it. But I believe he also, the other way that this word could be translated is that he's angry. He's angry because here I am, God in a bod, standing right in front of you. I am the resurrection and the life right here, and you're looking at me, and you are weeping as if that everything is lost. You are weeping as if this situation is irreversible. You only have preventative faith. You do not have resurrection faith, and he's angry about it. He's angry at their lack of faith. And so they move forward and Jesus said, where have you laid him? I think these emotions have gotten to him. He's like, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Which I thought it was funny, Chuck, that the kids can't give this one as one of the verses to go to camp. But uh, that would have been my first try. So it's good. This is important, folks, though. Let's not lose sight of this. Let's not just church this passage in our head and and move past this. God, who created everything, the word who was preexistent before creation, who spoke life into motion, the one who is the resurrection of life is standing there, and he's standing in front of a tomb. And even though he's God, even though he knows what he's about to do, 
Even though he already has a plan in motion, his humanity is standing there looking at the death of a brother, looking at a community in shambles because death had taken another life. And his only response was to weep. That's good news to somebody in here this morning. That's good news because you understand that our Lord, the King of our heart, knows what it's like to be heartbroken. He knows what it's like to lose somebody. He knows what it's like to look at a grave and feel like your heart has been ripped out. He knows what it means to weep. And each time you cry, he is there with you. Because death was never part of the plan. But the Jews, they looked at him and they didn't see beauty in this. In fact, they had scorn for Jesus. They said, they said see how he loved him? And some of them said, could he, not, could he not open the eyes of the blind man? Also have kept this man from dying? Once again, we have preventative faith. He, he loves him so much. Could he not have done something? Look at him, he's crying. All is lost. All is irreversible. And then John tells us that Jesus was deeply moved again. Once again, that's that deep feeling inside of him, that compassion and that anger. I found something out very interesting this week, that this word can also be used when it's not used for humans. It's used for animals. It's used to describe the snort that a horse lets out before it charges. It's a snort, or it's a, it's a grunt. It's something inside of an animal that it has when it's, you know, ready to charge, ready to go into battle. John Calvin actually said that this deeply moved is an emotion in Jesus that's equivalent to a wrestler about to enter the ring. Because the Lord of creation is staring at a tomb and staring at death, and you know what he's doing? He's getting himself ready to take on the enemy. And he's ready. Boy, that gets me pumped up. He's staring at that tomb and he's like, it's on. He has moved from weeping to action. He's moved from people having no faith, only preventative faith, to saying, I'm about to show my glory to the world. And so he says, take away the stone. Take away the stone. Now Martha, Martha's probably... The, uh, the only one that's thinking in this moment because she's like, but Lord, Lord, by this time there would be an odor for he has been dead for four days. So there she was worried, you know, you're gonna open up this tomb and there's gonna be a stench from this. And I think there may actually be a little passive aggressiveness here. Remember, I sent for you and it's been four days. He's been, he's been dead this whole time, you know, by the way. And Jesus' response is powerful. He says to her, did I not tell you that you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus pumped up, staring the enemy in the, in the eye, hearing another word of doubt, says, did I not tell you? And I don't believe he said this like all holy Jesus, you know, that speaks softly. You're about to see the glory of God. 
because deeply moved inside of him and looking around to see the heartbreak, weeping because of death, Jesus is staring it in the eye and he is about to move and people are still doubting. Folks, I love the words of Dr. Crabtree, a famous pastor who said this, never put a comma where God puts a period and never put a period where God puts a, puts a comma. And I'm gonna tell you this morning that the God that we have, the one who was staring down the grave when there was doubt all over the place, said, listen, as long as I am the resurrection and the life, there are no periods. There are only commas. And there is never gonna be a place where the irresistible is the end of the, the story. There's never a place where the irresistible is the end of the road. No, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And your life, folks, if you believe in him, will only be full of commas. And that ought to get us excited this morning. He says, no, did I not tell you you were about to see the glory of God? Open that tomb. And so they took the stone away and Jesus lifted his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you heard me. I knew that you would always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people so that they, the, the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And then Jesus says, when he had finished saying these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now think about this, folks. Imagine that you're there. And the man of God, the one who was, who's, who was the, the resurrection of life, and maybe you didn't believe, maybe you had preventative faith and you had not moved to resurrection faith, maybe you believed that this was irreversible, is standing in front of a tomb. They remove the stone and he calls the dead man out. This is crazy. Could you imagine standing at a graveside and walking up to a graveside at the end of a funeral service and the pastor saying, okay, take that six feet of of dirt off of that casket. What? Yeah, take the six feet off. Okay, and he stands over the grave looking at the casket. He says, okay, now, Bob, you get out. What would you think? Who has the audacity to think they can do this? What kind of man speaks to dead people and orders them to come out? What kind of man thinks that he has the, the audacity and has the power to tell the grave to give up the dead? That's what Jesus did. And he said, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus comes out. It tells us that the man who had died came out. Don't allow your, your grown up in church to lose sight of what Jesus did here. He comes out, his hands bound, his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him, let him go. And I don't know what you have in your mind when you think about him coming out, but you know, when they buried people, they would wrap their feet together and they'd wrap their arms against their sides and they probably put close to a foot thick of wrapping around their head and he'd be all wrapped up, he'd look like a mommy. mummy. And you know what? Lazarus didn't walk out of the grave, he hopped. You know? That's what he did, but he came out. Jesus had done something incredible. He had raised a man to life. He said that your life, if you believe in him, will only be commas and that there is nothing irreversible. Nothing is irreversible for the God of the impossible. And some of you need to hear that this morning. 
Some of you have irreversible things in your heart and in your life. And the God that we see in this sign, the God who raised the dead man to life, the one who is the, one who is the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in him will never die, says there is nothing irresistible, irreversible for the God of the impossible. Nothing. But God doesn't reverse time when he does this. Do you remember Superman 2, 1978? Lois Lane dies. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, but that's okay, you stick with me. So Lois Lane dies and Superman flies up into outer space and he starts flying around the earth the other way and he changes the axis of of the earth and it starts spinning the other way and everything reverses, right? Do you remember that? It was a great scene, I love that scene. But that's that's not what Jesus does for the irreversible. See, our God doesn't reverse the irreversible. He resurrects life. And it's better than reversing things. He resurrects life. He changes things forever. And here's the thing, folks. This miracle doesn't foreshadow Jesus' resurrection seven days later. Maybe longer than that. But it it doesn't foreshadow his resurrection. It foreshadows yours. It foreshadows your resurrection. Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, they will never die. Because sin, you know sin? That thing we sometimes don't like to talk about? That thing that's inside of us, all of us knows, that no matter how hard we try, we continue to do? That thing that breaks our relationships, gets in the way of our marriages, hurts our, hurts our family, hurts our friends, hurts ourselves? You know sin, that thing that gives us more regrets than anything else in our life? You know that thing? Guess what? The Bible's very clear that the wages of sin is death and it's irreversible. But Jesus did something about that. Jesus didn't die on the cross just so bad people become good people. No, Jesus died on the cross so sinners could be saved, so those who are in death could be raised to life. And that is what he is doing here this morning. He is showing us that the irreversible thing about sin and death is not irreversible for the impossible God. In fact, he wants to reverse your life by resurrecting it to life. And he doesn't do that by by spinning around the world. No, he brings death to life. And Lazarus is exhibit A, folks. This is a picture of who he is. From the anger at death, from the anger at our unbelief, from the compassion of weeping because death was never the answer. That's all the emotions he has to you, and yet he wants to speak to each and every one of you today. So I ask you, if this is the Jesus that we came here to worship, if this is the Jesus of the purpose why we are here, I ask you the same question he asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That whoever believes in him, though he die, he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. Do you believe this? When Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he radically redefined reality. Say that three times fast. He radically redefined reality. He removed the word impossible from our vocabulary. There is nothing that is irreversible for an impossible God. He's more than a winemaker. He's more than a lame walker. He's more than a water over the sea walker. He's more than even a man who can make a blind man see. He is a grave robber, and no one who believes in him has any death in their life. There is only commas. Come on. 
I'm the only one excited this morning. This is the greatest story there ever was. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. Do you believe it? If you do believe it, it should change you. It should transform you. Everything that's irresistible in your life right now, you should remove every period and put a comma and say, God is not yet finished. Because he is the resurrection. He is the life. And if you believe that this morning, then I gotta, I gotta pry a little bit deeper. Because here's the thing I also see from this story. You can't resurrect what hasn't died. That's a pretty simple statement, right? You can't resurrect what has died. So let me ask you this question. What needs to die in you for him to bring new life this morning? Because the Christian life, those who believe in him are called to live a life that is a constant movement from death to life. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny his cross daily. Ooh, Luke, why'd you have to put that in there? Daily, and pick up his cross daily and follow me. What is it that Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life, asking you, if you believe this, if your desire is to follow him, what are the things, the things that bring death to you, the sins in your life that plague you, what are the things that need to be put to death? Not so that he can reverse the irreversible, but so that he can bring them to life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I now believe in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What needs to be crucified in your life? What needs to die so he can raise it to life? Because here's the thing, folks. God is calling to you through Jesus, through my mouth this morning, and saying to you, if there are things in your life that need to die, to put them to death once and for all, because his call to you is, Dan, come out. Chuck, come out. Doug, come out. Sarah, come out. He's calling you. He's calling you to step into new life. He's calling you to put, put sin away once and forever. He's calling you out of the tomb. He's calling you out of death. It's more than just believe, folks. Even the demons believe. It's about putting your life in his hands and saying, my life from now on is dying to myself so that you, who was crucified and rose again, can live through me. And that seems like it's impossible. Because it seems like the things in our lives that we've done, some of us, hello, this guy right here, are irreversible. But what we see in this story, what we see about Jesus is that nothing is irreversible. Nothing. For the God of the impossible. No sin is too big. No relationship too broken. No mistake too large, no grave too deep. For the one who is the resurrection and the life to bring about resurrection faith in this place, in your life. So don't be scared to put those things that stand in the way of this life to death because on the other side is nothing but life because nothing is irreversible for the God of the impossible. But his impossible life brings incredible grace. It's the Easter story. 
It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe I'm the only one that's excited about it. Are you ready to live this this week? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are the God of the impossible. Oh, Lord, I praise you. As I think about the things that are in my life that sometimes feel irreversible, the mistakes, the words, the actions, I thank you that nothing's irreversible for you. Lord, I praise you that you are a God who stares at, stared at enemy death and you said you don't have the final answer and that we can say oh death where is your sting oh hell where is your victory because our God is alive he's the resurrection and the life Lord help us help us in the places where we don't believe this to have belief that this is who you are and you are and we are whose you are. Lord, for some of us to fully walk into this, there are some things in our life that need to be put to death. For us to move to this resurrection faith, there are things in our life that we need to say, you know what? Once for all, this no longer has a grip on me. Lord, for the people in this church this morning, those that are the sound of my voice that know immediately what it is your Holy Spirit is asking in asking them to put to death. Lord, I give them the faith, give them the strength, give them the people, the brothers and sisters in Christ to root them on to do that because you can't resurrect what hasn't been put to death, Lord. But on the other side of resurrection is life eternal. And that hope is the hope in which we live. Lord, I praise you for your son. I praise you for this good news. May it penetrate our hearts. May it move our feet in our lives this week in Jesus' name.